The uh, scripture reading today is taken from the book of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, which can be found on page 1023 of most of your Red Pew Bibles. I know some of them have a slightly different page. Mine is 1001. Some of them might be 1081. But uh, the scripture reading again is Luke, chapter 7 in the New Testament, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet? but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you continue to speak through these words written down generations ago, that these words are still living via the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would speak through them to us, to this place, to our lives, that you would open us to hear what you're saying even now. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Forgiveness is a costly thing. There's something about the remorse which we feel when we know that we've done something wrong that makes forgiveness a deep desire of our spirits. So much so that we're sure that to attain it will cost us dearly. In seeking forgiveness out, we may offer tokens of our penitence. We may buy a bouquet of flowers for our beloved. 
or offer a well-rehearsed, well-prepared and thought-out apology. Or perhaps we make some grander gesture to show just how much we've changed since being the person who did those terrible things. We do not necessarily ever feel as though we deserve forgiveness, but nevertheless, we commit to these actions because the chasm between what we've done and the possibility that we will ever be given the, pos- the opportunity for restored relationship again feels particularly great, almost impossible to cross, just overwhelming. This has actually been the great pattern of humanity, to believe again and again that forgiveness is so far from us that it's actually something we must in some novel way incentivize from those whom we've wronged. This is why we offer tokens of our remorse, gestures of apology. We rehearse the ritual steps which we have prescribed for ourselves, by which we hope and sometimes pray that we will make ourselves worthy of forgiveness. And this isn't only true of our interpersonal sins and debts. This has also been true in all of human history of the sins we have committed against God and the means by which we have sought to remedy them. The ways that we have tried to convince ourselves that we can quell God's anger, appeal to God's mercy, receive God's forgiveness. In ancient days and in some cultures still today, this was done by blood sacrifices in the hopes that by sacrificing our livestock, sometimes by sacrificing another person, that whatever we've chosen to lose would be deemed enough by God and our payment would be accepted. Of course, that's not where that notion stopped. In the Middle Ages, the church in the West began to sell the forgiveness of God to those who could afford it and what we called indulgences, preying on that feeling that exists deep inside each of us that tells us it is good and right that we should sacrifice, necessary that we should humble ourselves to somehow make amends, that we have to pay for it. We just have to. And it's only when we accomplish that It's only when we pay enough or grovel enough or sacrifice enough animals to this God that we will be forgiven. This mentality continues in unique ways even today. This mentality allows conflict to transfer from one generation to the next and continue well past them because we do not seek forgiveness for fear that the breach is too great the harm done too deep to ever be repaired by us. And we're afraid of the work that seeking forgiveness might entail. So even our government will often shy away from issuing apologies for atrocities done in generations past and not seek forgiveness of those whom we have harmed. And in so doing, we leave the harm there. We leave the fractured and broken relationships there, festering and making things worse all the time. We make things that much more insurmountable for forgiveness to be sought, for forgiveness to be offered, for forgiveness to be attained at all. And it's this mindset and with this burden that the forgiveness is something that we must incentivize or earn or persuade from another person 
that one could first read today's passage from the book of Luke. This woman, we read, is a sinner. God knows it. She knows it. The whole town seems to know about it. This isn't the small, private sin of the Pharisees. You know, the church-going types of the day. This is a big, public sin. And with big, public sin comes big, public shame. We can all relate to shame. So we read about this woman, and we remember the shame and great remorse we have sometimes felt, and we read those things into her actions. She's washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair, anointing them with ointment. This must be out of guilt. What else could possess a person to behave in such an undignified way? She's feeling guilty. She's trying to cozy up to Jesus, hoping that this might somehow change who she is, change what she's done, redeem herself. The Pharisee reads the room in the same way, too. He knows who this woman is. And if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what her game was, too. He'd see through this display of repentance and see the greatness of the sins she carried, the impossibility that merely anointing another person's feet would earn her forgiveness. Where's the blood of the bull? Where is the dedication of her firstborn to God? Where is the self-flagellation and inconsolable grief? But that's not really what the story's about. And Jesus points us to that. Jesus undermines quickly this whole system of believing that we earn forgiveness by doing the right things, by offering enough good to overcome the bad of our sin, and he shares this story. A certain creditor has two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both of them. Jesus is suggesting that the debts we owe to God, great or small, cannot be repaid. We can't earn the clean slate that we're looking for. Pharisee, churchgoer, or known to be sinful woman alike, it's too much. And as the good church-going types that I know many of you are, you might be saying to yourself, but surely, surely I only have that 50 denarii sin in my life. Eventually, I'm confident I could clear that slate. I could work myself out of that debt. You don't know the student loans I paid off. This thing shouldn't be a problem. And that may be our first result, response. My problems aren't so bad. The things I've done aren't so awful to never be made up for. If I tried, surely I could redeem myself and make sufficient amends to God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, helps us understand why that is not the case in this way. He writes that every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your life exclusively to his service. You could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, already his own. It's like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. It is all very nice and proper, 
But only an idiot would think the father is sixpence to the good for the transaction. Even if you devoted the whole entirety of the rest of your life only to God, those things in your past would still have cost God something that was meant to be his. Moments of your life, misuse of your gifts and resources, which you and each of us have chosen to put to another purpose than God's kingdom. And I hate to break it to you, but you can't conjure up any other new thing that could replace any of it. Yes, forgiveness is certainly a costly thing, but most surprisingly, not so for us. Forgiveness is a costly thing only to the one who offers it, only to the creditor who forgives all that debt. The debtors have not paid it. They cannot. Only to God who offers forgiveness to us freely is forgiveness a costly thing. Because in forgiveness, God absorbs the debt. He writes off the loss chooses in that perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that renewed relationship with us, with you, with all of humanity, is more important than exacting what is owed, or watching as we go about our rituals and our routines, miming penitence, play-acting our contrition, going about forever on our hands and knees, afraid that should we ever stand on our feet again, we will have at last offended God too greatly and incur his wrath most fully. I hope you can see that all of our efforts, all of our working and striving after forgiveness, all of that was misguided all along. The book of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was never our sacrifices, never our grand gestures which earned us forgiveness, acquired us somehow God's mercy. Such systems surely helped us feel better about ourselves. Perhaps they patched things up for a while, but ultimately we needed to be completely assured of God's forgiveness. And the way this happened was when God himself would suffer at our hands when the harm we have done again and again could be relived, but this time in front of our very eyes. God takes on the debt for our sakes. In Jesus Christ's moment of greatest vulnerability, God offers forgiveness that nobody yet sought. As Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness has only ever been offered to us freely. And God chooses to do so for us joyfully and before we ever asked or realized the great mercy which we required of God. That's why we baptize children. They don't know that they need this. They haven't sought God's forgiveness, repented of their sins. How could they? We're not much better than children. For us and for those infants, God has acted first. God forgave before we asked, worked for our good before we knew that he could. Jesus took the pain and abuse of the world and offered forgiveness without cost, without need 
for reparation, knowing that this debt could never have been repaid. There would never be anything any of us could do or say which could make up the littlest piece of it. It always had to come from the one who was wronged. It was always going to be graciously and painfully forgiven in the embrace of a loving God. So that story, what did motivate that sinful woman to behave in such a way? If it wasn't guilt, if it wasn't shame, if it wasn't working hard to try and trick Jesus into forgiving her, what was it all about? Love. Jesus tells us her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Her many sins had been forgiven. It had already happened sometime before in God's graciousness and love. She had received the forgiveness that she needed. And Jesus tells her that her actions of great love show us that. Our temptation, I think, is very often to read this story backwards. To read this story as if it is the actions of this woman that generates the forgiveness of God in Jesus. But not so, says Jesus. The forgiveness of God was given, and it was in gratitude for that great debt erased that this woman displays a response of love and tender care toward her forgiver. Not only does Jesus affirm the forgiveness of this woman who now responds in great love, I think he actually even suggests that the Pharisee too had been forgiven, though little. And so unaware of his own helplessness, unaware of the debt that he also could not repay, unaware of Jesus' importance in this entire equation, the Pharisee loves little but has been forgiven himself, nevertheless. Forgiveness is always far more about the forgiver than the forgiven. It is a work which begins in the heart of God and then is the generous outpouring of that good life to all who require it. Great sin and small sin, incredible debt and minor debt, all cannot be undone. All cannot be repaid, and all are absorbed in the love and mercy of a God who has chosen to love us so profoundly that the only appropriate response is great love in return, not groveling, not beating ourselves up, just love and the enjoyment of the restoration which we otherwise could have never known. Next week, Phil will be talking about one of the ways that we respond to God's forgiveness and how that impacts our conflicts today. So it's kind of a two-part sermon, and I hope that you come back next week to hear the end of it. But this week, the key point here is the extravagance of the act of forgiveness in itself. That God has freely forgiven you before you asked for it, before you recognized that you needed it. And in realizing that, in realizing the depth of our need for an unmerited and undeserved pardon, 
the forgiveness of our sins. Realizing that will help us to accept it. Accept that there is nothing we could do to earn it. Accept that there is no ritual, no spell, no righteous life going forward that could have undone or repaid a single thing that we owed. And then, it's in that place of acceptance that we can find ourselves free of the systems which tell us again and again that the shame we feel is good, that's proper. It's right to feel that shame. That the lengths we go to are entirely necessary. And instead of worrying about all those things, we can focus on the celebration of the freedom that we have received in Christ Jesus. We can now focus, instead of earning our forgiveness, instead of performing our contrition, on loving the good and generous God that has given us what we could not have earned. We can now focus on loving our neighbors and friends who have so found it within themselves to forgive those things which, when we're honest, we know we would have found it quite hard to forgive ourselves if done to us. Because that's the point. The point and the purpose of forgiveness is to begin the hard work toward fully restored relationship. Forgiveness is the only thing that makes that long and difficult road even possible. And God has started us off. God has offered it freely to us at great cost to himself. So let us learn from this lesson of the two debtors and the story of the Pharisee and that sinful woman. One has received her forgiveness, accepted it with a glad heart and responded in acts of love and service. And in so doing, she is affirmed by God as loved, as valuable, as truly and completely clean again. Let us learn from her to see the weight of our sin for what it is and to count it as no small thing whenever we receive forgiveness, knowing the great cost forgiveness does bear and counting it as a blessing for us and an opportunity to live the fullness of life in community with each other again. So may each of you and all of us, this week and in the coming weeks, accept the forgiveness which is offered to us with gladness in our hearts and with much rejoicing and seize upon it the possibility to live into an abundant life of love and generosity. For it is no small thing which we have received. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together again. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that while we were still sinners, you came to us. You loved us. While we were still your enemies, you offered us forgiveness without cost. Help us to learn to accept such an extravagant gift. Help us to live as you long for us to live out of love and rest, and peace in knowing who we are because of you. 
Jesus, we pray that you would take the shame that burdens many of our hearts, the regret we feel for things that we can't undo, and by your Holy Spirit, transform those feelings into joy for what you have done in us, into acts of love and service that show your generosity to the whole world. Help us to be sinful people transformed by your forgiveness, ever grateful for the great cost you have borne for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.